This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, thanks for coming. Jess Rao earned his undergraduate degree from Yale and taught English for two years as a Yale China Fellow at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He then went on to earn an MFA from the University of Michigan. He has two collections of short stories, The Train to Low Wu, which was shortlisted for the Penn Hemingway Award and was a finalist for the Kiriyama Prize, and Nobody Ever Gets Lost. He was named a Best Young American Novelist by Granta, has had three stories anthologized in the Best American Short Stories, and has won two Pushcart Prizes and a Penn O'Henry Award. In addition to being a fiction writer, Jess writes nonfiction and criticism, which often appears in the New York Times Book Review and other important places. Jess is an associate professor of English at the College of New Jersey and a member of the international faculty of the MFA program at the City University of Hong Kong. And as if this all wasn't enough, Jess has also been a student of Zen for 20 years and is an ordained Dharma teacher in the Kwam Um School of Zen. So you can all feel really like lame for not, you know, being ordained ministers and doing your day job. Um, His new book, Your Face and Mind, investigates the possibly not too far away world of racial reassignment surgery. After losing his Chinese wife and daughter in a car wreck, Kelly moves back to Baltimore and encounters his old friend Martin, once a white Jewish man and now an African-American one. Martin wants Kelly to write and break his story to the world, and Kelly becomes increasingly ensnared in Martin's world, a world he too is tempted to inhabit. This is just his first novel, and it's already creating quite a stir. In a starred review, Publishers Weekly writes that the book is furiously smart, taking readers on a zesty, twisty, sometimes uncomfortable ride. While the New York Times writes, this book is adult in its weight and complexity and formidable in its thoughtfulness. Rao doesn't shy away from the hard intellectual and moral questions his story raises or from grainy philosophical dialogue. But he submerges these these things in a narrative that burns with a steady flame. You turn the pages without being aware you are turning them. Which is what happened to me when I read the novel. Jess writes about race and class so fearlessly that I often found myself holding my breath, waiting from the backlash from the obviously non-existent other readers along with me in the room. He wrestles with white privilege and cultural appropriation, but the fiction comes first. In class, I often quote Samuel Goldwyn Mayer, the founder of MGM, if you have a message, send a telegram, he says. In other words, don't let your politics upstage your story. But Jess has written a novel that remarkably balances both. It is both personal and political, and both the questions it raises and the characters it brings to life will stay with you for a long time. Please join me in welcoming Jess Rao. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, it's a great honor to be here. Um, this is the first time I've ever set foot on the campus of of uh, Berkeley, but my uh, grandparents went to school here in the 1930s, so I, I have weirdly deep roots in this place I've never visited before. Um, so uh, Melanie did a really good job of uh, summarizing the basic gist of, of what the novel is about, how the novel begins. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to read from the beginning. I'm going to read from the second, sort of the second act of the book. So what, just, to, just to sum up what's happened so far, um, Kelly is the narrator. He's going to be the person speaking here. And uh, he's moved back to Baltimore after this great tragedy in his life. He lost his, his wife and young daughter. 
um, and he he meets this uh, this African American man who recognizes him and reveals that he is Martin, who was Kelly's one of Kelly's best friends in high school, and in high school twenty years before was white and and Jewish, and now has undergone racial reassignment surgery and and to become uh, a fully of um, a, a fully uh, a believable African American man in his thirties, um, and he's living a fully he's living a sort of normative life as that kind of person. He has an African American wife. He's raising adopted African American children. He has, he's an entrepreneur in Baltimore, and um, what he wants Kelly for his relationship with Kelly is that he wants Kelly to be his biographer. And to uh, they, he wants to cook up a not cook up. He wants him. To, he wants Kelly to uh, develop uh, his biography so that they can spring it on the world and make him a big celebrity and draw attention to racial reassignment surgery, uh, which is a at the, at this point is still a secret in the world. Only a few people know about it. So as part of this process. Uh, Martin wants Kelly to come with him to Thailand to meet the surgeon who did the surgery and to get that part of the story. It's necessary for what Kelly is doing, writing Martin's biography. Uh, so the, the part that I'm going to read now is uh, Kelly and Martin have just arrived in, in Bangkok and uh, Kelly is waking up on his first day, assuming that what he's going to do that day is go talk to the surgeon that... Uh, did the re- racial reassignment surgery on Martin, but he doesn't know anything else about, about what's going to happen. Out of a dream of my childhood, a hike up Mount Cardigan on a bright autumn day, scampering up a long granite face at a gentle incline, bursts of October light filtering through canopies of yellow and red and orange, I opened my eyes to the sun streaming through a gauzy curtain above my bed, the shutters drawn back, the branches of a rubber tree thrusting up into a pale sky strewn with jet trails. Five or six different species of birds are singing all at once, competitively, trying to drown each other out. An avian pep rally. It's the sound of mid-morning, they're saying, the day fully established, the hard business of seed cracking and grub probing underway. And I look down at my watch and see 10.30. Someone should have come to get me by now. But since they haven't, since the day seems unscheduled, Not that Martin ever gave me an itinerary, an agenda. Not that I have any proof of being here other than a stamp in my passport and a boarding pass jammed into a shirt pocket. I sit up in bed and take a long breath, a waking breath, whatever that means. When you wake up in a new country, I'm thinking now, your senses are the sharpest. Newness to the touch, to the nose, to the tongue is a series of small insults. I ought to be paying full attention. I'm on retainer after all, a professional visitor a professional writer. Why is that so hard to say? I should be taking everything down. The room, which was dark when I came in, past midnight, and tumbled into bed without even turning on the bedside lamp, is much bigger than I imagined. The bedroom opens into an alcove with a writing table and a couch, and the look is Thai resort classic. Even I can see that. All teak and rattan and silk, lustrous green and gold scarves hung on the walls, a pair of brass kneeling monks on the coffee table, an antique-looking map labeled Siam over my bed. Thorough, expensive, and generic. Too perfect, like a stage set for one of those reality TV shows where I'm a strapping nitwit from Des Moines, a doe-eyed dental hygienist from Wilkes-Barre. 
On the writing table, in a square glass vase, there's a bouquet of orchids, of course, bound up with pencil-thin shoots of yellow bamboo. The room smells of incense and also something drier, more chemical. Wood polish? Antiseptic? Pledge? Detol? Febreze? Somebody's put a lot of time into this, I'm thinking. It's a room that says, you're having an experience. You're getting what you paid for without demanding anything of you at all. Someone downstairs, the birds have died down for a minute, is speaking Japanese. It's been years, and I hardly studied it conversationally, mostly just scholarly Japanese for my PhD, the stock language of articles on Asian literature and linguistics, but I can pick out a few words here and there, the shape and direction of the sentences. Of course we pay for the airport, no visa requirements, full private bath, yaha, yes, yaha. What does yaha mean, I wonder? I will mail you the brochure, he says, whoever it is, speaking formally as to a client, a customer. Call me back. I can almost hear the bow. In Japanese, even when you're speaking on the phone, you bow. A secretary, I'm thinking, an assistant of some kind, maybe from the sound of it a separate business on the side. There's nothing unusual about that. It's just that Martin didn't mention it. But who thinks of everything in a place this size? Would I expect to be all alone? The house belongs to Martin. I'm remembering that now. In the car, pulling through the gate, Martin couldn't resist giving me a proprietary smile. You get sick of staying in hotels, he says. He said, no matter how nice they are. And in my case, I have business interests. It makes sense to maintain a presence, an address. I let clients stay here sometimes. These perks, you know, in the business world, sometimes that's all that matters. People are shallow. Sometimes all they want is a gesture. It's a pretty elaborate gesture, I might have said, though just to make an obvious point. Now I'm up and moving around, feeling a hollow cramp of morning hunger, post-flight hunger. My laptop bag is on the writing table, untouched. My suitcase, however, stands to one side in the bathroom or dressing room, since it has mirrors, a chest of drawers, a pressing stand. It's empty. Somebody came and put my clothes away while I was sleeping and added a bathrobe, a set of blue silk pajamas still in their plastic wrapper, a pair of rubber flip-flops and a pair of leather thongs, and, as I see when I open the closet, an off-white linen suit more or less my size. Or when I slip on the jacket, almost exactly my size, the cuffs only an inch too long. What is this, I want to ask Martin. Fantasy Island? Or callbacks for a Tennessee Williams play? On the other hand, it's a pretty nice suit. I need coffee. Coffee, a few words with Martin, a plan for the day. I shrug the jacket off, leave it hanging on the doorknob, and choose what seems to be the most neutral outfit, a black polo shirt and jeans, and slip out the door in my stiff new sandals in the blue-tiled hallway, open to the outside with tall arched, win- arched windows at both ends, and down the stairs, only dimmer- dimly remembering where to go. When we arrived last night, the house was dark, floating in a constant hum of crickets or katydids, and there was only Pran to greet us, a short, stocky man, very brown, in a blue sarong and a Dallas Mavericks t-shirt, who carried all our suitcases upstairs at once. Now I come into a kind of central gallery, a breezeway, done in the same blue tiles, and following a smell of coffee, flowers, and overripe fruit, into a large open kitchen or kitchen office. At the kitchen end, a woman in a blue smock dices vegetables with a cleaver, her face covered with a surgical mask. At the other end, along one wall, sits a bank of three computer screens and a short, slender black man in front of them, his dreadlocks done up in a knot atop his head, tapping a pen on the desk and speaking into a headset mic in the voice I heard upstairs, perfect, unhesitating, native Japanese. 
And so on instinct, as travelers do, as scholars do, as a matter of habit and protocol, when he says sayonara odeshka and turns to me with a broad bloodshot smile, I say in Japanese, good morning, I'm Kelly Thorndike. May I have the honor of your name? God, he says, you startled I. P- sorry, pleased to meet you. His English has an overloud, exclamatory, gummy quality to it, and it takes me a minute as if two frames of a photograph have to be overlaid And then I realize he's speaking with a Jamaican accent, a kind of effortful, labored accent, like Philip Michael Thomas on Miami Vice. (laughs) I'm Tariko, he says, the office boy, head web lackey and secretary of all things Orchid. Did Martin tell you who I am? Your Japanese is not bad. I feel, for some reason, the urge to wring my hands and simultaneously the need to sit down. Inside and outside body, inside and outside my body, the world for a moment has the consistency and smell of melting candle wax. Behind me, I hear the skitch, skitch, skitch of plastic sandals, and the woman in the surgical mask appears carrying a plate of three croissants and a cup of something dark and milky. Sit down, please, she says, and gestures to a small side table. Helpless, boneless, I follow her. And when she pauses for a moment before leaving, I take a bite of croissant and chew it with my eyes closed, trying to remember what a croissant is supposed to taste like. Tariko, I say finally, which are you? Which am I what? Which were you to begin with? Oh, that! Should have introduced I properly. I'm transitioning, of course. Originally Tariko Ogawa from Kanazawa, Fukui Prefecture, and in six six months, Ross Leon Coxholden from Spanish Town. I'm the first the first Japanese, that is, to go all the way. Well, I say, it's very convincing. And then in Japanese, when I heard you upstairs, you sounded completely Japanese. When I came down here, you looked like a Jamaican, no doubt at all. Dr. Silpa is a miracle worker by Jaws Grace. Would you prefer if I spoke only English? If you don't mind, he says. I have to use Japanese on the computer, of course, talking to potential clients and brethren. But otherwise, I try to stay with English, part of my process. Are there Japanese Rastafarians? Of course Japanese Rastas. I'm second generation. He reaches over to the table and flips open a thin wallet and shows me a much-creased, laminated picture. Bob Marley in his late stage, raccoon-eyed, slack-jawed, his dreadlocks thin and tumescent, shaking hands with a tiny, grinning, shaggy-haired Japanese man in a tie-dye t-shirt. My dad ran the first reggae sunsplash, he says. 1978. Took the first Japanese pilgrimage to Ethiopia. No, I'm dread as they come. 100% Nyabingi, Ital from birth. So it's natural for me, this project, this journey. His smile has a certain infectious warmth. It exudes contentment, confidence, ease. Why make it so hard, the smile says. The mark of a natural salesman. He could sell junk bonds, burglar alarms, timeshares, used cars, Mormonism. Whatever it is, I'd think about it for an extra moment. I'd be tempted. You'll have to forgive me, I say. I'm a little out of my element. Martin didn't tell me that anyone else would be here. I'm not surprised, Tariko says. We're a bit of a state secret. But look, take your time, man. You just got off the plane. Take it easy. He turns back to the computer, and I take another three bites of my croissant and a sip of coffee. Coffee, Bite, breathe, bite, breathe. Out on the street, out of sight, <coughs> Excuse me. a motorbike roars by, unmuffled, loud as a chainsaw. The sunlight pouring in through the doors has a pale, dusty tinge, and I'm beginning to realize that among other small insults, the day is taking on real heat, massive, physical, dry-season heat, not the plangent tropical skin bath I expected. 
We can't see anything but the garden, of course, but I can feel an echo, a restlessness in the air, a suboral buzz, the resting tone of the vast city. After a day or so, I won't even notice it anymore. What does it mean, I ask myself, that Martin didn't tell me? Did I really think, did he really lead me to believe that he was the only one? Out of the whole world, out of all the possible variations? The first American, maybe. The first white to black? And then, as Americans do, I didn't stop to consider the rest of the world, all the other possibilities. Toriko, I say, I have a question. Yes? In Japan, is it a secret, too, what you're doing? No one else knows? Of course it's secret, he says, smiling broadly, as if it's the most foolish question in the world. Or else, why wouldn't you have heard? News travels fast in the first world. And when you go back? I'm never going back. Not me. No point to it. At the end of this, I'll be in Jamaica for good. Jamaica in body, Zion in soul. And your clients, your potential clients, they know what's on the site. Haven't you seen it? We're still updating it all the time, of course, but there it is. He gestures me over to the screen and clicks the browser's refresh button. That and only that, he says. A dark blue screen appears with a line drawing of an orchid unspooling in white across it. And then at the bottom, like credits in a movie, one line comes into view, fades, and is replaced by another. Who are you? When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you see you? Do you dream in another language? Do you dream of starting again in a new skin? Start here. The orchid group invites you to consider the possibilities of a new you, an entirely different appearance from skin to hair to physical features of every kind. At the frontiers of reconstructive and reassignment surgery, we can accommodate the needs of clients who feel that their psychological health depends on a radical physical transformation other than gender. We are a full-service healthcare provider based in Bangkok that offers psychological assessment and counseling, lifestyle enhancement, language and dialect tutoring, sequential transitioning care, and a full range of surgical procedures. Under the leadership of Binfalong Supasavan, MD, Harvard Medical School, former assistant professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery, University of Rochester. Our staff are native speakers of English, Thai, Japanese, Korean, Spanish, Tagalog, French, German, Italian, and Russian. All our services are offered in complete confidentiality. We offer payment plans and loans through HSBC Thailand Limited. The text block fades, replaced by a mosaic of smiling faces. An African woman, very dark, with a kente headband, a dashing, square-jawed Asian man with a pearly grin, a strawberry blonde girl, Swedish or Polish or maybe Russian, a thin, ashen-faced hipster in an Oxford shirt and enormous square glasses. As I watch, each photo dissolves into a new one, an Arab man with a goatee, a severe-looking Latina with arching eyebrows, a Native American man in a suit, a Filipina or Indonesian woman in a hijab, a teenager with a Jennifer Grey nose and bobbed curly hair, a Chinese kid with dyed blonde spikes and thug life tattooed across his breastbone. It's exhilarating trying to label them all, to enumerate the possibilities, like a Benetton ad, of course. That's what anyone would say. Only hitched to the mathematics of a Fibonacci sequence, a difference machine, a deck of cards that always reshovels itself, a self-producing maze, reproducing maze, a cancer cell, adding a new layer at every turn. This isn't, tomorrow. this isn't you seeing tomorrow. This is tomorrow seeing you. That's what you call it, I say? A radical physical transformation other than gender? Yeah. Doesn't sound quite right, does it? 
But right now, we don't have any choice in the matter. You can't say race, otherwise the hounds will be at your back. Can't say ethnic, same thing. It's confusing, no doubt. I'm the one who's here answering the phones all day, trying to tell people we can't make them into a dwarf, can't make them six feet tall, can't make their penis two foot long. It's time to lift the veil, if you know what I'm saying. I guess that's your job. So Mr. Wilkinson told you that part. Of course, the whole marketing plan. The computer pings, a chat box is opened up with a line of Japanese. Toriko glances at it and makes a kind of 21st century shrug, slightly shifting his weight back toward the screen. Are you really more important than what my device is telling me? I'll let you get back to work, I say. But Toriko, one more question. Of course, anything. How many of you are there? Of me? Of us? Prototypes, you mean? Two so far, officially. Including Mr. Wilkinson? Including him, three. Will I get to meet them all? You already have. I look over at the woman in the mask, back at her dicing now, but still with an earshot. Julie na, Tariko says. Don't be shy. Take that thing off. Come here. When I turn in her direction, she's already slipped her mask down under her chin and looks so much like someone I should know that for a moment I wonder if she's famous, say, or an Amherst grad, a WBUR employee, a Harvard woman. She has any Korean woman's pencil straight black hair held back in an ordinary high ponytail, but very light skin, a little more pink than I would have expected, a thin aquiline nose, a wide mouth, full lips, and round, curious hazel eyes. I would have guessed in another circumstance that she was biracial. In truth, if you dyed her hair, she would have no discernible Asian features at all. Julie Na, she says, hands tucked beneath her breasts. Kelly, right? You're Martin's biographer. Welcome. Make yourself at home. She speaks with the flat, disaffected politeness of a gallery receptionist in Chelsea and then looks over my head at Tariko as if to say, can I go now? Julie is mad because you took her spot, Tariko says. She was hoping to write the big book on racial reassignment surgery. From a scholarly point of view, of course, she's a professor. But also a participant? I put the question to the air halfway between them, expecting Tariko to answer, but hoping Julie will. Anthropologist, he says. This is fieldwork. We're her tribe. Like getting tattoos if you work with the Maori. I was an academic too, I say, turning in her direction, still feeling, against all indications, that I know her, that we should already be acquainted. At Harvard, I say, East Asian Studies. And? She's back at the counter now, still chopping. Whatever she's preparing could feed 50. And I left, went over to journalism, public radio. Why, your advisor didn't like you? No, not at all. It's such a direct question, coated with insult, that I have to swallow a moment before going on. I needed money, I say. I had a baby daughter. There weren't any jobs out there I wanted to take. We didn't want to leave Boston. Anyway, I was done with what I wanted to do. One book, one area of research. I was exhausted. Every life takes its own pathways, Tariko says. Right? Right. No, Julina says. Wrong. She turns to face us, her mask slipped back on with a block of tofu in one hand and a cleaver in the other. What do you know about every life? Either one of you. What do you know about your own lives, for that matter? pathways. There aren't any pathways, only patterns you don't recognize yet. If you knew it was a maze, you wouldn't take the bait, would you? There's a certain refractory gleam in her eyes, a light thrown off from another source, the look of a fanatic, the absolute certainty and the oblique carelessness, the gnomic casting away of words. It repels me like a force field. I take another sip of coffee, stand up, and walk the other way, through the hallway, and out the open door. This is morning, I tell myself, for the fourth or fifth time. 
This is Thailand. The yard is as manicured as every other part of the house. An undulating lawn, close cut, and enormous, almost comic plants spilling over the neat borders of piled river stones. Thick shrubs with heavy, shiny, waxy leaves, ginkgo, bougainvillea, ferns, camellias. Here and there, there are enormous ceramic jars as big as bushel baskets, filled with water, lotuses blooming from lily pads on the surface. I look down into one and see tiny goldfish, or what I assume are goldfish, flicking about, some no bigger than my smallest fingernail. Pran stands barefoot at one corner of the garden, near the wall, gathering mangoes with a long two-pronged hook. The mangoes, entirely green, fall into his palm one by one, and he tosses them lazily into a bushel basket. Seeing me, he smiles and raises his free hand in a half Y. How you sleep, he says. Sleep okay? Excellent, thanks. Want anything? Kitchen? Julie now gave me breakfast. At this he says nothing and returns to his work, peering up into the tree's canopy for hidden fruit. There's something deeply wrong, enormously, intensely wrong, but here in the sunlight, the smell of the bougainvillea and the faint rumblings of the city outside, a blast of tinny tie pop from a car radio, a shouted exchange in the street, two friendly voices singing at each other, it fades without disappearing. A faint, barely noticeable smell of rot, an open latrine somewhere on the premises. It's been so long, nearly five years, that I've forgotten the simple gladness of waking up in Asia. Not at home, not at home, the little song my heart used to sing every time the plane landed in Beijing, Hong Kong, Tokyo, as if I'd gotten away with something. Of course, I had gotten away with something. I'd escaped. I have escaped, even if only hypothetically, a hypothetical escape from an actual crime. Why did that never enter into it? Why in all these years did I never pause to consider myself a fugitive, if only in my own mind? Not once, because I was so sure no one knew? On the far corner of the garden, across the driveway, in the, in the spirit house for the, is the spirit house for the property, a miniature temple, white with a red roof, set on a pedestal and hung with orchid garlands as offerings. San, pra, pro, San Prapum, the name comes back at me from the lonely planet I read on the plane. Every house in Thailand has to have one, no matter how humble or small. The roof with its curlicue edges, each side curving toward the sky, always reminds me of flames licking upward. Every house is a house on fire, as the Buddha said in the fire sermon. You should regard your own body and everything around you as if it were on fire. Was it the flames of desire or the flames of impermanence? Or both? Or are they one and the same? The result is the same. Every house is a house burning down. Leave. The word hovers in the air as if the bushes had breathed it. What would I need? Just a quick trip back upstairs, my passport, my wallet, the envelope of bot Martin handed me in the airport. Spare you an ATM charge, he said. Here's some walking around money. We're somewhere out in the suburbs. It might take me an hour or two to find a taxi. But how hard could it be? Twenty U.S. dollars in a universal gesture, the flattened palm rising up to the sky. There are alarm bells ringing across continents in my brain. Pran touches my sleeve. He's come up next to me on the grass silently and hands out, holds out in his palm a dark purplish fruit cut in half. Mankut, he says. Thai fruit. The inside looks like a peeled head of garlic, little white sections, half moons in a woody shell. Gingerly, I take two. They dissolve on the tongue. Isn't that the phrase? Like very soft pineapple or lychee with a chewy nut-like piece at the center. Amazing, I tell him. He hands me the rest. Eat more, he says, and gestures with a folding knife in his left hand. 
Something's happening, I notice, too late, as I pop the final section into my mouth. A counter-reaction, a sour liquid rising in my throat and pooling under my tongue, and at the same moment, my knees tremble, a definite single knock, a jolt, a need to sit down. Is it an allergy? I don't have any allergies. No intolerances. Not even when it comes to food, any very strong dislikes. My stomach though, now has woken up, and something is happening. It's beginning to turn, not so much nausea as dizziness, disorientation, as if my blood is being drained and diluted, half strength. The gray hour. And with this thought, as if on cue, Martin's Mercedes comes rattling through the gate, its mirrored windows glinting, his arm reaching out toward me in a lazy wave. Thank you very much. Um, I would love to take questions. If anyone has questions, I'm going to have to do a kind of a, a whip with my head because the room is so wide. But if you just if you have any questions, raise your hand and I'll. Yeah, all the way in the back. <laughs> yeah, sure. How did the plot come about? Is that the question? How did I get the idea? Um, I, I got the idea in a, in a kind of a strange way. I, I um, happened upon a book by a critic named Sander Gilman, Sander Gilman named, uh, called Creating Beauty to Cure the Soul, which is a book about the history of plastic surgery. And the invention of the nose job is basically most of what the book is about. It's about the invention of rhinoplasty by German-Jewish surgeons um, determined to erase their what they perceived to be their Semitic-ness in Germany in the 19th century. Um, and uh, reading, just riffling through that book, somehow it came to me, what if there were the 21st century equivalent of a procedure of racial reassignment that would be total and that would be accessible to, to anybody? Um, and it just, it just sort of came to me. And then the, the Baltimore piece, I, uh, the Baltimore piece came to me because that's where I'm from and, and the, one of the real reasons why I wanted to write this novel is because it connected so deeply with an ex- the experience I had when I was a teenager in Baltimore of uh, getting wrapped up in hip-hop culture and having white friends getting wrapped up in hip- hip-hop culture and really feeling a sense of a, a gender divide, or a gender divide, a racial divide, interesting slip of the tongue, uh, ra- a racial divide almost beginning to blur in a sort of interesting way. And, and, and really knowing people, knowing white peers who, um, who, I, who I remembered at the time that I began the book, I really remembered, um, you know, expressing the desire to be black, effectively, either through performance or through words, but really expressing that desire and wanting to write a book that came to, term with, come, came to terms with that in some way. And then the rest sort of just unspooled from, from there. Just tried to make it as, as, as problematic as possible from the, from the get-go. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been to Thailand. About, I, I lived in Hong Kong for two years, and I, I went to Thailand beginning then in the, in the late 90s. Um, and I went and, and did an actual formal research trip for this, for this book where I went and talked to plastic surgeons in Thailand that, that specialize in uh, gender reassignment surgery, which is, which is a very big uh, business there. And... Um, I had this very interesting experience of having these surgeons telling the surgeons what my book was about and having the surgeons say to me, that already exists. They just don't use that word for it. You know, that the, 
racial reassignment, in their perspective, was something that's already happening, um, just not with the kind of total sci-fi approach I have here, just sort of piece by piece, but in their perception, the desire for racial reassignment was, was self-evident. It was something they saw every day. So, it really, you know, that really, that really hit me. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the sci-fi part, the technology part, had to do, has to do with um, observing the, the amount of um, surgical change and, sort of, and technological change, medical changes and procedures that have developed over the last 30 years, and really trying to think of what is the logical next step. And to me, in some sense, this is the logical this is the logical next step, is to, is to formally designate a category, a thing called racial reassignment. Because the, the surgical tools, the technological tools, some of them already exist, and a lot of them are just sort of on the cusp of existing. And so, you know, for me, it just seemed, um, it seemed interesting and also something I could really build an interesting novel around. Um, this, the second part about passing white, white to black is not, that's a question I've gotten a lot because the traditional, traditional passing narratives, especially in an American context, tend to go the other way. And really, you know, as I was saying a moment ago, to me it came mostly out of my own experience um, of, of witnessing uh, the desire of white people to take on blackness. Um, and but also wanting to raise the question of what that means, you know, and and to really look at the ways in which we think of uh, we think of passing as being access to privilege, access to power, access to status. But there's so many um, kinds of physical transformations and ethnic transformations out there that that go the other way and that have to do with. Uh, fetishizing a certain kind of otherness or a certain kind of exoticness or a certain kind of authenticity. And so I really, I wanted to put that front and center because it was something that hadn't been done before. And it seems so uh, clear to me that it was happening in the world and I just hadn't seen it in fiction. Yeah, Sunisa. Yeah, well, my, the, um, one of the first people I talked to about the novel, um, somebody who was... Uh, involved in my career said don't don't write that novel you know i told her the idea and she said i you know maybe i don't think i'd written any of it at all this is quite a few years ago and she said don't write it you don't want the kind of trouble that that novel is going to bring you said words words to that effect so you know from the very beginning you know i was warned you know I was, and you know i had a lot of trepidation and what i tried to do was at every step of the process take my trepidation and fold it into the text so that the issues are are uh, layered into the every every sort of fear or reservation I had is sort of layered somewhere you know like a lasagna into the into the text, so that you bite into it and you get a little bit of all, sort of the grit of um, of of how difficult it was to put all these things together. That was very intentional. That that trying to trying to make it a uh, an experience. Of reading that that sort of bites back at the at the reader, yeah, Melanie. I can I can show you some reviews that clearly you missed. <laughs> can you, have you had any kind of, uh, or, or can you share any of the? You want me to share my bad reviews? 
Right, right. There was one review that came out very early. It was a, a review by an African-American woman. And she said in this, it was a blog review, so it was very personal. She said, I expected to hate this book, and I wound up liking it much more than I thought, which made me feel very nice. But she also, but she, she said that she had a lot, and I've heard this from a number of people, she had a lot of resistance because she was reading Martin. She was She felt like the book was... The book is presenting Martin as somebody who is not black, but he was fully passing for black. And, she, and she, so she felt, she, she voiced it as a sense of disloyalty. That was her experience of reading. I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and really, uh, I was really glad to get that response. And I was glad that she also walked away liking the book. But it was really interesting to, to hear that. Um, that, that you know that there was a sense of of displacement or disloyalty, even in reading the character that she felt she was betraying her own sense of of identity or belonging, yeah, by belonging or even by taking him seriously as a black man in the first place you had a, you had a question with a great spectrum of responses, the whole spectrum of responses um, positive uh, negative uh, you know. Querying, um, there a number of a number of uh, writers um, pointed out that they felt that the novel didn't take doesn't take seriously enough the qualms that a person would have about being transformed into an African American, about being subject to violence and being subject to the day to day what what um, one critic called the liability of being African American. And when I thought about that, I thought, she has a point. That, that didn't, it's not that I didn't think about it, but I, I, I really wanted to create a character who... Martin is a character who's an entrepreneur and somebody who sees blackness as almost entirely positive. Because in the end, what's revealed later in this section is that his, his mission, fundamentally, is to make blackness a global brand and then turn ghetto communities in the United States into places where that brand can be taught and commodified. You know, he, he views it on that level. And that's a very eccentric and polemical, and it's meant to be very disturbing. So, but, but one thing I, that doesn't draw attention to is it doesn't, it doesn't draw attention to um, the... It, it doesn't draw... You know, he is deliberately trying to present blackness in a very positive light. And it is very one-sided. And some would say inauthentic or problematic. And, you know, I was trying to bring all of that in there. But, you know, maybe, you know, I missed, I missed, the, I missed things, maybe. I mean, you know, and, 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 and the world that I, in which I was writing this novel was the world before Trayvon Martin and before Ferguson. And I think if I were writing this novel and finishing it now, it would be quite different. Those things would have to enter in somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, white privilege is something that I can't uh, undo or evade, right? So uh, the book is an expression of my white privilege, as everything else about my life in some way is an expression of my white privilege. And um, what I can say about that is that in the book, I try to meet that head on as best I can, but nothing. No way of presenting the book can 
undo the fact that it has a certain status in the world because I'm a white writer. So that's a risk I thought long and hard about, and it's a risk I was willing to take, but it's still a risk, right? It's still a... It's an imperfect situation, to put it my... You know, it's a, it's a fraught situation. And I like to think that I stepped into it with open eyes. But my eyes are only as as open as a, you know, as a, as a partially sighted person can, can be. That's, this, and the second thing, what was, I'm sorry, can you say the second question again? Right, right. Right. Well, I mean, I would say Martin has turned into what he views or what he tries to create as a kind of a, a certain kind of black identity. Um, it's one kind of normative black identity. Um, and he's worked very hard to create you know, a facade of, that's totally consistent so nobody will question him. And you know, I think it's an open question, and some people have brought this up, uh, would such a thing be possible? Right? Some, pe- some, some people have said, like, would it be possible for somebody to pass, in the, you know, to, to carry off the illusion that Martin is carrying off? And my response to this, some people have been very skeptical about that, and my, my observation about that is that there have been so many instances of passing of, of all kinds um, in American history that, um, that are really shocking. Like, how did people pull this off over decades? You know, that's the kind of, uh, that's the basis I was working with. But it's a work of speculative fiction, and so it's meant to speculate rather than decide. Now I have to decide whether I'm going to give away the end of the novel or not, <laughs> because your question sort of prompts it. So, well, Kelly is, con- I'm not going to do the whole spoiler, but Kelly at the end is confronted. Martin asks him whether he wants to become Chinese, whether he wants to have the surgery and become Chinese. And at the end of the novel, he's faced with the decision of whether or not he undergoes the surgery and becomes the first white man to become Chinese through racial reassignment. Chinese, I should say, through racial reassignment surgery. And um, that, I had a lot of, a surprising amount of identification with that, that thought process. Um, And it was, you know, it it was partly because I think as you're writing a novel, you sort of get more and more in the character's world, and and no matter who the characters are, there's a little bit of a slippage between your identity and your character's identity. But also, you know, what, what, what Kelly is thinking about at the end when he's going through the process of trying to decide, and he's literally at one point, he's looking at his own body, and he's looking at his own body in the doctor's office with this plastic surgeon there saying, I can change this, I can change this, I can change this. And I had this, really, this moment of real deep identification because of, you know, all the feelings I've had over my life about um, how many things I'd like to change about myself. And what if somebody actually dangled the possibility in front of me or in front of anybody and said, we can do anything, you know, other than you can't make you tall or, you know, but you can do anything, you know, we can change your appearance so radically and you could become, you know, what, what Kelly is thinking is, I want to look like Beat Takeshi, who's this Japanese, he's sort of like the Japanese Robert De Niro. That's the kind of person he wants to look like just in a kind of a joking way. You know, I had, this, I had this moment of thinking, of really wondering, like, would I do it or would I not do it? And I think a lot of, um, 
a lot of readers I've talked to have had that same moment of thinking, like, would I do this were the chance offered to me? Would I alter, would I alter anything or would I go all the way? Um, it's a very interesting question. It's sort of an existential question. Um, and I, I really got into it. I was really, you know, I was really um, gripped by it briefly. So, yeah, I did. there was a lot of, there's a lot of autobiographical material about Kelly, but also just the emotional sort of arc of the novel. There's a lot of me in there, too. More questions? Anyone else? Um, I, I actually, I have, an, I have an, a little essay on my blog about it that I can point you to. Um, it quotes Adorno, so it's, it's acceptable reading at the University of California, Berkeley. It does have a quotation from Adorno in there. Um, Adorno has a great essay called Punctuation Marks. It's very short, very accessible. I highly recommend it. Um, the reason why I stopped using quotation marks was because my fiction sort of took a turn in my 20s when I was in Hong Kong and I was starting to write about Hong Kong and I really wanted to make a decisive break with the kind of Raymond Carver, Richard Ford, um, drunk guys in Montana fiction that I had been writing up to that point. I really, I wanted to make a decisive break and I was reading a lot of people like Michael Andaje uh, and Cormac McCarthy, a lot of, a lot of writers who, um, who don't, who, who, who abstain from quotation marks. Um, and I really, you know, it was sort of just a stylistic choice that I made at the time. And it was only later that I realized what I was really trying to create was a feeling that the whole fiction is, has a dreamlike quality. You know, that, that there isn't such a sharp differentiation between narration and dialogue. So that it all, it all feels like it's happening in a, in a dream. And the thing I like about it is that it makes the fiction look on the page different from what I would say from nonfiction. It makes the, it makes it it makes it look different from say text that you read in a newspaper. It gives it a kind of a a quality that you have to sort of fall into in order to get the rhythm of it. Um, I know some some readers really just don't like it, and you know it's it's I think about it all the time. Like, should I go back? Because there's a really, you know, like I, you know, some people they just they 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 it's it's difficult for them to get into it. It's difficult for them to tell who's 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 speaking. But that's that's the reason why is because it's because I really like to have that kind of that dreamlike quality that you sort of fall into the text and you're experiencing it all as something made up, as something dreamlike, something fictional. Because that's what it is, of course. Um, I guess that's. I guess that's it. Thank you all so much for coming. We're honored by your presence. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.